Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I am your one and only full-time permanent host, Eric Trexler, but today I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No problem. I want to begin today's episode by uh, extending a great deal of gratitude. Uh, thanks to everybody who has been supporting Macro Factor uh, during our big launch sale that is currently going on. We launched on the 16th, technically, so five days ago. Uh, so far, it's going fantastic. We really appreciate all the interest, all the support, and all the feedback. So if you do happen to check it out for the free trial, uh, make sure that you join the Facebook group or the subreddit for Macro Factor and let us know how things are going. Uh, let us know what kind of features you'd like to see in the app. Uh, we really appreciate all your feedback. Um, and yeah, so now we want to move on. Uh, road to the stage. What yes, do you got? Sir. Uh, road to the stage. So uh, good news all around today. Uh, I hit a new low for this current diet. I was 240.8. I was going to say this morning. It was not this morning. It was, in fact, this afternoon when I saw that weight <laughs> on the scale. Uh, my good friend Eric woke me up today. Uh, <laughs> I did. So <laughs> at, at the crack of 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. So in my defense, uh, until so I went to bed at like five, like 4.35 a.m. Uh, and prior to that, this, this is not an exaggeration. I tallied it up before I went to bed. Uh, I'd been uh, answering questions and doing a bit of customer support for Macro Factor for 39 hours straight. Uh, so uh, your boy was sleepy. Uh, so anyway, that's that's why it was this afternoon. But yeah, 240.8, that's a new low. Uh, feeling good. My weight trend uh, is below 244. Um, and I've been below 245, I think, for like six days in a row now. So that's a, I would say like a, a milestone that I've I've fully fallen beneath. Hopefully it will not reclaim that again in the future. Um, and yeah, it's it's been good. Uh, this, this has been an uh, insane week uh, <laughs> all around. So uh, when I get really busy, one of two things happens with my appetite and I want to say ability to stick to a diet, but more like my willingness to stick to a diet. Uh, and that is either that I'm uh, just like hungry and craving food all the time, uh, or I have no appetite and I have to like remember and force myself to eat. And I think it, I think it largely comes down to uh, how engaged with and how much fun I'm having with whatever I'm busy doing. Um, so this has been a very crazy week with the macro factor launch, uh, but it's been very fun. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, yeah, it, it hasn't been, it hasn't been tough to stick to a diet just because, um, you know, I'm, I'm very intensely focused on other things. And so like, uh, cravings aren't like slipping into my brain. Whereas if I'm very busy and it's things that I don't particularly want to be doing, I think I start to fixate on food, not just food, like my brain wonders a lot and it often like flits across food as like, oh, here's something else to think about because you're clearly not enjoying the things that you're actually doing. 
And so like, let's try to find some happy thoughts. And so, you know, just more distracted generally. And one of the things that my brain, I think, tries to distract me with is thoughts of food. Uh, so yeah, when, when I'm very busy doing things I don't want to do, I, I find it a lot harder to stick to a diet. Uh, but anyway, it's been the good kind of busy. So that's, uh, that's helped out a lot and things are going well. Awesome. Congrats. Thank uh, you. Ever closer to the two thirties. That's big. I think it'll come this week. I, I think, uh, I don't think I'll be consistently waking up in the two thirties next week, but I, I do, uh, I do think I'll see two thirty something on the scale at least once next week, which, which feels good. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, whenever I'm like really busy and even just a little bit stressed, my appetite just completely disappears. Mm -hmm. So if you ever see me, uh, and it looks like maybe over the last few weeks, I've lost like seven or eight pounds. <laughs> it, it's a cry for help. I, I need some degree of <laughs> support or attention. Uh, it's, it's like clockwork. Uh, mm -hmm. like you remember when I was trying to close on my house, yeah. Uh, and it was just like a really stressful time. Uh, dude, I, I lost like a legitimate nine pounds in, like, in a really short span of time. And then once it was all over, I immediately gained exactly nine pounds back. Like mm -hmm. it was it was crazy. Um, all right. So road to enlightenment. When I first uh, started mentioning the road to enlightenment and my uh, my path into or journey into learning more about secular Buddhism. I got a lot of messages from people and I noticed that people are kind of in it for different things. You know, some people are really into secular Buddhism because they want to have like really big uh, debates and discussions about theological concepts or ethical concepts or things like that. And I noticed other people want to look at it really rigorously and empirically and, and kind of treat it as like a branch of neuroscience. You know, mm -hmm. it's like there's people who are like, oh, I'm into secular Buddhism and they're talking about like fMRI all the time, you yeah. know. So for me personally, I was more into kind of the day to day application, you know, uh, th that was really what drew me to it and seeing if I can learn more about these concepts and apply them, can it have a positive impact on day-to-day -day life? Yeah. And I have noticed a lot of that. One of the areas where it's helped out is dealing with like, <laughs> you've seen this, just like super vitriolic criticism where you like read it and you're like, you know, it's one thing to like dislike an article or a podcast or whatever, but like, dude, how are you so mad? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and so back in the day, I would get those kind of comments and like my natural response was to like fully match the vibes, you know, like the, <laughs> the, the toxicity, the energy level, the general bad vibes. I'd be like, okay, I guess that's the discussion tone. Here we are. Oh, fuck me. No, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. like, it was like that kind of thing. Um, and I've noticed with like the more I've gotten into secular Buddhism and, and practiced more aspects of mindfulness, I'll, see something like that, take a couple breaths and say like, okay, was this person probably like having a bad day, mm -hmm. you know, or is there, is there something else going on behind this? Um, but that brings me to, so a couple of days ago, we put an article on the website. Uh, it's a big diet setup guide, you know, meant to be like a really comprehensive synthesis type article where we say like, Hey, this is from 
you know, starting from scratch all the way through the process, really comprehensive review. I, I wonder if that'll come up again on this podcast episode. Maybe, we are going to a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, we are going to discuss it in detail, but real uh, professional move. Yeah. So one of the comments that came up on it <laughs> was, I'm paraphrasing here for parts of it, but it's basically like, listen, I already knew all of this. Uh, very cringe. And, and then they said, get a real job. <laughs> uh, and that that is like right from the right from the comment. And I was just like, okay, that that's fine. But um, I, I do know who left this comment. Actually, they left a, kind of like a decoy email. Mm-hmm. But I, do you mind if I address them directly? No. Since I, because I, the I, email it's, didn't it's, fool me. It's your podcast. I have uh, no ability to tell you not to say something. Yeah. So, Dad, listen, we can't keep having this conversation <laughs> about my career. Uh, being an assistant blogger is a real job, and I'm just following my dreams. So, you know, if you and mom want to keep having this conversation, we can do that, but you got to stop leaving negative reviews and negative comments on the website. Okay. So that's taken care of. Um, but yeah, path to enlightenment, the road to enlightenment going well. So it's, it's funny. Uh, it's funny. You should, you should mention that, uh, being, being judged for your career choices of being a, uh, being an assistant blogger, Uh, not an assistant podcast host correct full-time permanent yeah yeah so this uh this actually happened to me last week this is this is completely off script uh we will get back to feats of strength in a moment though uh but anyway so uh i was at i was at the store the other day and um the the people bagging groceries were high schoolers and so you know, if you have adults bagging your groceries, generally they will say as little to you as possible. They'll say paper, plastic, and then they'll say like, do you want to round up for Salvation Army at the end or like whatever. Uh, that's about it. That is the extent of the conversation. But, uh, you know, these these were high schoolers. They were young. They were full of life. Uh, I've never seen them working there before. So I think it's probably their first week on the job. Uh, and so they they were trying to you know, strike up a conversation with people coming to check out, which um, I, I understand to some people might sound like a very bad scenario. I, I love it. Like yeah. I'm very excited to have little conversations with as many people who want to have them throughout the day. Um, but yeah, so uh, they <laughs> just like asked what, what we did for work. <laughs> And I, I have a variety of ways I answer that question, and it largely comes down to, do I want a follow-up question or not? Uh, and I think my most dismissive answer to that question is, I'm a blogger. Because, um, I don't know, it, it doesn't sound that interesting, I don't think. And for people who aren't bloggers, I think like it's... Not, not understood sufficiently to feel like you can ask a good follow-up question, except maybe like, okay, what subject do you blog about? And I can say like, eh, strength training. Style and fashion? Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, I said I'm a blogger, but uh, you know, there's still a mask mandate in Raleigh. I'm wearing a mask. Maybe I didn't enunciate that well either. So they thought I said vlogger. 
uh, and they they both lit up. They're like, oh my God, that's awesome. I have a buddy who's a vlogger. Uh, he has like 40,000 subscribers. What's your channel? We'll check you out. That's so cool. I was like, oh no, I'm sorry, man. I'm a blogger with a B. And they just completely deflated. They went yeah. from being so interested to <laughs> 0% interested. Like, what the fuck, dude? There's no, there's no video component. It's just the B version, not the V version. What the fuck, man? Um, uh, the the art of the written word is is fully dead. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was so funny because they uh, just completely turned turned on a dime from being so excited and invested in learning more about my vlog to having zero interest in uh, anything blog related. So that that's... I, I I thought that that was. Uh, very very fun and endearing well that's interesting because if you tell an older person that you're a blogger they absolutely don't care yeah uh, and apparently now younger people also absolutely don't <laughs> care so good good time to be in the blogging game yeah I, I think uh i think like mm, i think like millennials through like the younger members of gen x are the only people who care about blogs which yeah. is fine yeah. All right. So uh, what do we got here for Feats of Strength? Uh, yeah. So um, let's see. Several people have reached out in the last two or three weeks and uh, said, hey, uh, Feats of Strength, generally mostly powerlifting and a little weightlifting. You don't talk about strongman that much, uh, which that is a fair criticism. And in my defense, just a warning, this is going to be a very weak defense. But in my defense, uh this is, I think, one of the least important segments in our podcast. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, I do not put that much effort into it. And so, you know, my uh, my searching is largely relegated to do I know places where, like, new records will be comfortably aggregated. Um, and so, like, if you go to the powerlifting subreddit and just search, like, top posts from the past two weeks like most of the most highly upvoted ones will be recent big lifts so that's that's very convenient for powerlifting uh and then weightlifting i mean like there aren't that many big weightlifting meets we're gonna where people are gonna be setting records and so like they show up in your feed and also like i know those sports better than strongman uh like you know i i could uh I could rattle off a lot of the powerlifting and weightlifting records, but yeah, I've I mean, th there's, there's so many fucking strongman records. There are so many lifts and there are so many federations and whatnot that like, I don't know if someone lifts something heavy and strongman. My first thought is like, damn, that's really cool. That's very impressive. My, my first thought isn't like, Ooh, is that a new record? Um, just because like, I have no idea cause they do so many things. Um, so anyway, yeah, probably don't talk about strongman and feats of strength as often as I should. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, um, this is going to be a strongman-focused feats of strength segment because there have been uh, strongmen doing very strong things recently. Okay, well, we'll call it feats of strong since it's strongman-related. Well, there is there is one that's not strongman-related. Okay. Well, anyway, so um, let's see. Nicholas Camby. Uh, 105 kilogram class strongman uh, recently set two separate pressing records at the 2021 clash on the coast. 
uh, he broke that weight classes record for uh, both the uh, the block press. Um, so I've tried block press before. It's fucking hard. Uh, it, it's the one where you're not like holding an implement. They just have like a rectangular box that you have to get up to your chest and then press. It's uh, it's very unstable, um, relatively hard to control. And uh, so, yeah, so that's it's just a tough lift period. Uh, and so Nicholas Canby broke the record uh, with uh, 141 and a half kilos or 311.9 pounds, which, you know, if, if you're 105 kilos, putting over 300 pounds over your head any which way, you know, that's you're strong if you can do that. But being able to do that with a very unstable implement like a block press, uh, very, very impressive. So is this block, is it like the the approximate size of like a box you'd pick up when you're like moving, like when you're packing up your house? Um, so, I mean, there are different kinds of blocks you could press. So if you go back, uh, my, my first exposure to it was um, watching like reruns of World's Strongest Man. One of, one of the ones that Kazmaier won, they had a block press. Uh, and they, they were just, I think like probably cement or concrete blocks that were just hewn in different, different sizes. I think these days it is standardized and they have loadable blocks where like, you know, the the whole thing when it's put together is firmly constructed, but you can change the weight. And so it's a little bit more standardized, but I'd say it's like maybe shoulder width or slightly wider and maybe like six eight inches tall okay thereabouts um and and so yeah it's i mean it's it's an awkward implement yeah um so anyway at uh at the same event he also broke the log press world record um with 187 kilograms or 412 pounds uh i i think that broke uh rob kearney's old world record if memory serves Um, so yeah, two pressing records at the same event, very impressive stuff. Uh, move into kind of more old school ish, uh, strongman stuff back in August, uh, Lawrence Chalet broke the, uh, Denny stone carry world record. So, uh, the Denny stones are two big old rocks over in Scotland, I believe, it's either Scotland or Ireland. I'm almost positive it's Scotland. Anyway, they're two big old rocks. One of them weighs a little bit over 300 pounds. One of them weighs a little bit over 400 pounds. Uh, the legend goes uh, Donald Denny, uh, way back in the day, picked them up and carried them a- across a bridge. Um, and then they just kind of like stayed there for, <laughs> for anyone else who wanted to, to match the feet of Donald Denny. Um and so uh, not many people have been able to fully carry those stones across the bridge. And one of the things that makes them difficult, well, two, two things that make it very difficult to do so is uh, one, as I just alluded to, the stones are different sizes. Uh, one of them is about 100 pounds heavier than the other one. And so like, I don't know if you've ever done like heavy farmer's walks, but like accidentally misloaded the two handles. So one of them's heavier than the other. You pick it up, you try to walk with it. You know how weird that feels. So you're you're already dealing with uh, the fact that they're loaded different amounts. And then also, um, 
so I, I should have explained this better. You're not like picking one up in each arm or anything like that. Uh, there are handles attached to them that is is what you pick them up with. But the handles are rings, like ring-shaped handles. Uh, and so my understanding is that like they are hard to get a good grip on and they cut into your hands in like weird and uncomfortable ways. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah, be, being able to pick those suckers up, I think only a little bit over 100 people have ever done it. Um, and I think only like eight or 10 people have ever carried them the full distance that, uh, Donald Denny was claimed to have done in record, uh, or in, in legend, I should say. Um, but anyway, so until, uh, until Shale, the record for the furthest Denny stone carry, uh, was held by Brian Shaw and he carried them. A little bit over uh, 13 feet, I believe, for, um, or maybe a little bit over 10 feet. I should have taken that that note. Anyway, the record was previously held by Brian Shaw, uh, and he actually set the record while filming that show that used to be on the History Channel, The Strongest Men in History. Um, so Brian Shaw previously had the record, and uh, Lawrence Shalley, uh carried the Denny Stones 14 feet 10 inches, or a little bit over four and a half meters, to uh, break that record recently, which uh, is insanely impressive. One other thing, just to add about the Denny Stones before moving on, uh, there have been uh, a few women who have lifted the Denny Stones, um, but the the history of women lifting the Denny Stones is, uh, I'd say, very very uneven that's not a good way to describe it let me let me uh just be explicit about it jan todd so i'm sure you know about jan todd a lot of our listeners probably don't uh she's one of the the mothers of like serious strength sports and like strength feats uh for women um like huge pioneer in the area uh but so she lift she she became the first woman to lift the denny stones in 1979 and I don't think uh, any women lifted the Denny Stones again until 2018. Wow. <laughs> and so uh, since then, there have been a few other women who've lifted the Denny Stones. But uh, Jan Todd, just just way ahead of the field on that one. Um, if you don't know about Jan Todd, you should look her up. Very, very uh, just impressive athlete in virtually anything where being strong <laughs> helps you out. Yeah. Uh, and, and just way, way ahead of her time. And they've got a cool, they had a cool thing going down there at uh, University Texas. of Texas yeah. in Austin. It was like uh, a whole academic program dedicated to uh, the history of, you know, physical culture and mm-hmm. strength sport. And I believe she's still uh, heading that, uh, that, uh, yeah, that yeah. department. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, both, uh, both an insane athlete and a scholar. Yep. Uh, okay, so the last uh, strongman-related one, and if anyone listening to this does follow strongman, you knew I was going to mention this. Uh, Iron Bibby broke the log press world record uh, for the super heavyweight division. 229 kilos, which I think is 506 pounds, thereabouts. Um, not too much more to add to that. That's a ton of weight to put over your head on a fucking log. Uh the thing so the thing that is most impressive to me about log press world records 
is how comfortably they seem to clean it. <laughs> um, like I, I've, I've actually done a fair bit of log pressing. That's, I, I think of the strongman movements I've dabbled with. My, my favorite is probably like 18 inch deadlift just cause you load it up, you pick up something really heavy and I really like partial deadlifts. Second favorite is probably log press. Uh, there's just something very satisfying about it, but I, I always find the clean very challenging. So like anyone who can, who can log clean <laughs> anywhere close to 500 pounds is just wild to me. Um, but yeah, so uh, new record, 229 kilograms seems to be very close to, uh, you know, moving past the 230 kilo milestone. So, uh, Congrats to him. There's a video of this on the official Strongman YouTube channel. Uh, you should check it out. So the, the video is like five minutes long and like 30 seconds of that is the lift. Uh, and then the rest of it is, you know, just like kind, kind of like the celebration, the the guy on the mic hyping him up and then like a little interview. Um, he just comes across as, as a very humble and genuine guy as well. So uh, a very likable champion. So cool. uh, congratulations to him. And then the final feat, feat of strength, uh, not keeping this 100% strongman uh, focused. Someone shared this in the Stronger by Science Facebook group. Um, it is, and I think this is the youngest, uh, youngest person to be inducted into the feats of strength segment on wow. the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, a young girl named Rory Van Olft. I, th I believe that's how you would pronounce her name. I don't see how you'd pronounce it any other way. Rory Van Olft. Uh, I think she's like either eight or nine years old. Uh, there was a video of her. Nope. Turn off the volume. Uh, there was a video of her uh, deadlifting 90 kilos at a body weight of 30 kilos. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, that's like 66 pounds deadlifting right at 200. Uh, she is using straps, but also like, Young children have small hands. Uh, standard barbell is therefore probably too large for their hands to actually yeah. <laughs> actually lift heavy. That's that's like deadlifting on a on a fat bar for an adult. Uh, so yeah, uh, very very impressive. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Strength to body weight ratios aren't everything. Um, it's easier to have a high one if you simply don't weigh very much allometric scaling, etc. Um, but yeah, like who gives a shit? This is an eight year old girl pulling almost 200 pounds, yeah. which, uh, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That, that's really impressive. So, uh, yeah. Uh, congratulations to her. She, uh, I mean, they're, they're after this video was shared in the stronger by science group, uh checked out her instagram she does all kinds of strong stuff she's far stronger than any eight-year-old uh has any right to be so uh <laughs> congratulations to her and and i certainly wish her all the best nice <laughs> all right so we've got a new segment here uh we've got a segment that we're calling tech support uh obviously this is new because uh, we've only recently dabbled in the world of technology and phone apps and supporting people and supporting people. Yeah. That's never <laughs> been our strong suit. 
But uh, basically what we're going to talk about here is some of the biggest questions and comments about the app so far. I'm going to try to keep it short, but these are questions and comments that came up enough that we felt like it would be worth addressing. And they are uh, informative outside the realm of just the app. These are things that are still usable pieces of information, even if you're not using a diet tracking app. Yeah. So the first thing, but some of them are. The first thing we do want to mention. So if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash macro factor, that's the page that contains a ton of information about the macro factor diet app. And there's a huge grid that compares and contrasts uh, various features of several different diet apps. So basically for the consumer who wants to look at this grid and compare and contrast all their different options for uh, for different diet apps, that's what, what the purpose is. And we did uh, omit a check that we went in and corrected. So uh, one of the, the features or um, kind of selling points for the different apps is whether or not you use a food database that is verified by registered dietitians. Uh, and so with the RP diet app, we did not give them the check mark for that. We were unaware that they used an RD verified food database. So they were very cool. Uh, they just sent us a quick message, someone from the RP diet app and said, Hey, just so you know, we don't like put it front and center. We don't advertise it. We understand why you didn't know that we use this database, mm -hmm. but we do. So we appreciate them for just being cool and letting us know. And of course we ha had no interest or intention of misrepresenting that. So we went back in, updated the grid and we're going to continue to update the grid. You know, uh, if, if there's anything that we missed, of course, we'll always update that promptly. And if there's new exclusive features we add that we can yeah. add lines to the grid. Make, if if make we us look add, even cooler. Yeah. If we <laughs> add something or if other diet apps add stuff, you yeah. know, we're going to continue to update that because diet apps are not totally, uh, you know, static, you know, different apps can add different features as they go. And so if we get to the point where we have to start filling in all these, all these different checks, then for the consumer, that's a huge win. Yeah, there's a lot of features out there. It's going to be a pain in the ass for Lindsay to keep that updated, but it's uh, going to be good for you, the consumer. Yeah. Okay. So now getting to a couple things uh, that have come up. One of the things that comes up a lot is people have asked, um, within the macro factor app, um, we use the calorie information that comes from the food database, which corresponds with what you would typically see on the food label, right? So that's the calorie number that we pull in and users have noticed if I assume four calories per gram for carbohydrate and for protein, and if I assume nine calories per gram for fat, my macro totals, if I do some multiplication, don't give me the same calorie number that I'm seeing for the total calories. Um, and they're wondering if it's a rounding error, if there is a mistake, if the food labels are listing perfectly accurate macros, but just kind of putting their thumb on the scale and undercounting their calories. There's been a lot of confusion and a lot of people saying, hey, give me the correct calories, which is by multiplying these macros well, and also just people coming from other diet apps and they say like, Hey, uh, we're, we're liking macro factor so far, but the previous app I used had this feature and you don't. So why don't you have it? Like yeah. Th th this is, uh, one of the areas where we did like the previous app we used more. So, you know, what gives. Yeah. And so when we went into the stages of development, you know, this isn't something that we totally overlooked and we're like, oh, God, uh, why didn't we think of that? 
the decision to not go that route with mm-hmm. multiplying the macro totals by those standard numbers was intentional. And just for a little bit of context, there are a lot of different ways that you could represent the calorie content of a food. So you could go purely based on gross calories from bomb calorimetry. Um, you could do gross calories based on uh, based on the specific heats of combustion for the different macros. So you could add up the macros and multiply uh, the fat by 9.4 calories per gram, carbohydrate by 4.1, and protein by 5.65. That's another method. Or you could use uh, the metabolizable calorie, uh, like general factors, 4, 4, and 9. Um, or you could just take the calorie number straight from the label. You know, there's a lot of different ways to do this. And in fact, you could get even more granular if you wanted to. So not every protein has exactly the same amount of calories per gram. You know, if you look, look at the individual amino acids, you could really drive yourself crazy trying to uh, go in and make these perfectly tailored uh, numbers. Yeah. I, I think that is something that, um, I think that's something that people aren't aware of unless they've looked into the history of where those four, four and nine figures came from. Uh, that was a, it was a somewhat controversial move at the time because, uh, before like nutrition labels were really a thing, or at least nearly as standardized as they are now. Um, I, people had kind of a better understanding that, um, the metabolizable energy that you can get from like different sources of different nutrients varied slightly. So, you know, if you, if you go back to the research where those four, four and nine numbers derived from, uh, I mean, what, what they essentially did is, is they looked to see how much energy was derived from a wide variety of protein sources, a wide variety of carbohydrate sources, a wide variety of fat sources, uh, and, and basically just listed like, okay, here's for each individual like nutrient that falls under these umbrellas, you know, here's how many calories per gram there, there was. Uh, and the reason they settled on four, four and nine is that for carbs, it never really devi- it, it didn't, it generally didn't deviate that far from four for proteins it generally didn't deviate that far from four and for fats, it generally didn't deviate that far from nine, but like there are, and I don't have them right off the top of my head, but like there are proteins that have like, you know, 3.3, uh, kilocalories per gram. Uh, and there are some that have like maybe slightly more than five kilocalories per gram, but within the broad world of proteins, most of them are close enough to four, that if you're just saying like, okay, how many calories per gram do you get from protein? Eh, it's probably about four. But the the four, four, and nine numbers are uh, inexact approximations for any particular discrete carbohydrate, protein, or fat source. Those those are just they're close enough for all of them, but uh, it's not like a perfectly precise number for any of them. Yeah. So you know. A reality here when you're talking about tracking macros and tracking calories is that whatever method you use for your calorie quantification, some degree of imprecision uh, is going to be unavoidable. I mean, that you are signing up for that when you get into the game of counting calories uh, and counting macros. So uh, then it just comes down to different pros and cons of different approaches. I think 
one of the areas where you see some of the bigger discrepancies, usually the events that cause someone to ask us about it, is foods that have really high fiber content and where the uh, you know fiber is going to be listed as carbohydrate on the label. Uh, but in many cases, the type of fiber, you know, the, the energy, the metabolizable energy content of it is totally known and it's far below four calories per gram. And so in a lot of those instances, you'll see a food where, you know, the, uh, the calculated calorie total based on just that basic, uh, macro calculation is far higher than the calorie number listed on the food label. And what is happening there is that the food label is uh, accounting for the fact that those grams of fiber are not going to be contributing four calories per gram. Uh, and so in that case, it's a scenario where you get discrepancies when you look at your macro totals and you look at your calorie total. But in that instance, I, I think you can make a very strong argument that it's good that that you have that mismatch. The, the calorie uh, number that is being counted is more reflective of the energy your body's gonna be absorbing from that meal. So uh, I believe we are gonna introduce that feature down the line, or we're, we're at least considering it, where you can opt in to uh, having your calories counted that way. Yeah, we're it's in discussion. It we'll probably add it eventually. It probably won't be anytime particularly soon. Um, and we're doing it begrudgingly for the record. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know, so I, I think there are, um, I, I don't want to get off off track yet. Uh, yeah, so there, there, we probably will add it eventually. There are uh, other features we have in mind more imminently that we think will uh, be more valuable that we're, we're prioritizing for development. So yeah, we, we might add that at some point, but it, it probably won't be anytime particularly soon. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to the next one. Uh, nope, not yet. So I, I did have two things I wanted to add. Okay. Um, so I, I think that within, within the fitness world, uh, I think the reason that there is the desire to track calories as just like the sum of the macros and just multiplying them up. I, I think that that exists for two reasons. One is, uh, I think, everyone has probably seen like a supplement label that that was just grossly in, inaccurate at some point. So, uh, pretty, pretty famously like a few years ago when like everyone was very mad about BCAAs, uh, there were a lot of images going around of like labels of branch chain amino acid products that on the label, it says like per serving 10 grams of protein, zero calories. And like, obviously that's fucking wrong. Like that's not even close to accurate. Yeah. Um, and, and like there, there are other supplements where like the, if, if the macronutrient information on the sup on the supplement label is correct, the calories must be wrong. Um, so like that, it's not that, uh, so in a situation like that, just summing up the calories from the macros would probably be more correct, but that's kind of just a problem with supplements. Yeah. Um, and, and it's more an issue with that supplement, supplement the way it's being labeled correct. more so than an, uh, an issue of using calories from food labels. Right. So that, that is not an issue with most supplements. Uh, and it's, it's not an issue hardly ever for like actual food products. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if you're like the, the only situation where I could see you getting a far more accurate calorie count, uh, by kind of 
adding up and multiplying the macros versus just using the calorie labels is if you are getting a relatively large proportion of your daily calories from badly mislabeled supplements. Uh, but we, we think, or at least hope that that applies to not very many people. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, the other thing is I think one of the reasons why there is the desire in some sectors to account for calories by adding up and, and multiplying out the macros is uh, like in situations like if you've worked with a nutrition coach, for example, um, who requires like a very, very extreme degree of adherence, um, like, you know, you need to be within like 10 grams of each macro and within like 50 grams of your calorie target or something like that. Uh, and you know, if, if that is an experience that you've had, um, you will often find that that may not be possible if you're accounting for calories and macros independently. So the example you gave earlier was fiber. Like if you're eating a fair, a fair bit of fiber, uh, you know, (laughs) not even that much. If you're eating like 20 grams of fiber per day and like, let's just say all of that is indigestible, that's going to have effectively zero calorie content. But if you're counting all of that as carbohydrate, which the food labels would, you're going to wind up with a mismatch of 80 calories between your macro counts and your calorie counts. And so it would be impossible to be as adherent as someone is expecting with your macros and your calories simultaneously. So kind of a way to resolve that stress. Uh, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why some diet coaches recommend this uh, is, is they found that like, oh, if I want people to be as adherent as I expect them to be, this is the only way to make their macro and calorie targets add up. Um, but that's kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe this with grace. It's kind of a fiction. I would say like, it's, it, it's, it's a workaround to make that restrictive of a system possible versus being a more accurate reflection of reality. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's, I think people who've come from uh, that type of like very restrictive nutrition coaching background, like if, if you've, if you've worked with a coach like that previously, I think um, y- using that method of calculating calories, just from summing up and multiplying out the macros, I think that like, served a purpose for you and and more so for your coach um, at that time. But that does, that doesn't mean that it's a more like actually accurate way to count calories. It, it was just a way to make that restrictive nutrition coaching relationship possible. Yeah. And you know, there's nothing wrong with saying like, Hey, you're doing nutrition coaching. Here are some macro targets. Try to keep your fiber within 30, 35 grams a day. That's an easy way to get somebody into a general calorie range. And as long as you're not, you know, being really, really ultra precise within that and being super restrictive, no big deal. You're basically dealing with calories without quantifying them. You know, as long as you're keeping that fiber on the radar. Um, but yeah, if, if you're trying to say, Hey, we need to make the calories fit. We need to make the macros fit. Everything has to be perfect and there is no room for error. Then yeah, it gets really hard to make that work feasibly. Yeah. 
All right, ready to move on to the next one? Let's do it. Okay, so uh, people have asked why we don't have alarms and banners and alerts and uh, all sorts of general uh, chaos if they go a little bit over their macro target for the day. So like uh, if you, let's say you were supposed to have 160 grams of protein, uh, people have asked why it doesn't like turn red or give you some kind of error message or alert you if if your protein goes up to like 161 or 162 or anything above 160. Um, or even like 200. Sure. Like if, if you blow past it, we don't... Uh... It doesn't like turn red yeah, and like self destruct. We don't give you a slap on the wrist and say no, bad. Eat less protein. Yeah. So the reason's pretty simple. Um, the targets we give are for guidance. You know, we think, hey, this is probably a good range for you to be in. Uh, like we said, whenever when it comes to tracking anything nutritionally, uh, any insistence upon uh, upon absolutely perfect precision is a, a bit of. A, a fiction, as you put it. I mean, it's a bit of an illusion. Uh, even if we try to make it look perfect, realistically, it's not. Uh, but yeah, the, the targets are for guidance. These are a set of macro targets and a calorie target that should get you where you're trying to go in terms of your goals. Uh, and Macro Factor as an app has a big emphasis on being adherence neutral. So it doesn't require or expect perfection in order to keep working effectively. You log what you take in. We continue to take those measurements, uh, factor them into a rolling estimate of total daily energy expenditure. We adjust your calorie target accordingly. Uh, and so frankly, people are wondering why there aren't a bunch of alerts and alarms and scary messages about uh, you know, the catastrophic issues of going a little bit over. And the reality is it's not that bad. Yeah. You know, we're the app is going to continue functioning uh, totally fine. Um, going a little bit over a target is not going to derail you in any way. And we don't, I mean, we we market the app as a diet sidekick. Like that's what we call it. We want it to be your advisor. And this is something I always remind my clients of. However, we will still occasionally refer to it as a diet coach, just purely in marketing copy, just purely due to uh, our, our desire to rank highly for particular search terms in the app store. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to make sure people know what it actually does. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, this is something I, I remind my clients of all the time, working one-on-one -on -one with people. Uh, sometimes I'll have a client who's like, man, I really screwed up. I went five grams over on my protein uh, and I apologize. I really let you down. And I'm like, dude, I, I work for you. You know, yeah. like, like the way this is supposed to work is like, you are the, uh, you're the president. I'm your lowly advisor who, get, who gives you recommendations. If you defy my recommendation, I have to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you don't, you don't owe me an apology. That's not how the, the power balance works here. Um, so it's the same thing with the app. The app is there to support you. You are not serving the app. Okay, so uh, we, we don't want to reinforce that type of thing and uh, have all sorts of negative messaging if you have a very human level of imprecision with your tracking. Yeah, or, or I mean, so one of the, one of, I think, the issues that people can run into, and, and one, of the, one of the issues that I've dealt with personally in the past is that... Um, when you so like let's say you're tracking in my fitness pal 
uh, and your and you go over for like carbs or calories or whatever for the day. Like when you go over, there will be like a little message that tells you, you know, more or less like, hey, you fucked up. Um, and so I, I think that and like I realize this is irrational, but like people get into irrational headspaces when dieting uh, pretty frequently. I, I think it's easy to start conceptualizing your days as successful versus non-successful. And so like you go over the app says like, Hey, you fucked up. It's like, well, shit, now I fucked up today has, has been a failure, which one, eh, bad vibes. And we're trying to avoid bad vibes, but then more importantly, you know, once you've already failed, like, ah, well, what's, what's the harm in just having as much fun with this failure as possible? Uh, you know, maybe eating more than you, you, you were planning on. Cause like, whatever you already fucked up. So like, let's just run with it for the day. Uh, and then try to get back on back on the wagon tomorrow. Um, and so I, I think like in terms of pursuit of your goals, that can lead to patterns of thinking that can do far more harm than good. Um, so, uh, with using macro factor, like I, I want to make it clear uh, <laughs> macro factor was built with you in mind, but very early on, it was built with the five of us in mind, our, our team, like before alpha start, like before alpha testing started, um, you know, our, our thinking <laughs> was like, Hey, the five of us track our nutrition. What are things we want to see in an app? And like, how do we want it to behave? Uh, and like, I, do not have perfect dietary adherence. I'm in the, I'm in the middle uh, of a very successful cut, but like I'm definitely not hitting my numbers square on the head every day or really even any day. Uh, I'm generally pretty close for calories and protein, but like fat and carb targets, fuck it. I, I literally don't even care. Uh, and, you know, often I go over on calories. Sometimes I go under on protein and like it's not a big deal. Uh, but anyway, where I was going with this is... Um, there's not that negative feedback that that leads to the thinking of like, okay, this day now has been a failure. And so what I can do is like, you know, let's say the app's telling me my estimated energy expenditure is 3,300 calories per day. That's that's about what it is right now. Uh, and I'm aiming to consume like 2,400 calories per day or so. Uh if anyone's listening to this and they're like, ooh, that seems pretty low, it's because I budget like 4,000 calories for every Saturday, have a big potluck with friends, eat a lot, bump things down the rest of the week. But anyway, so my, my goal for the day is like 2,400. Um, and But I know that like my estimated expenditure is like 3,300. And so I have I have a range of, uh, of, six, of actions I can take today that can... Uh, lead to success you know maybe not losing weight at the precise rate that i want to but that will still result in a positive outcome so you know if i'm a little bit under my calorie targets but not so much that it's gonna like make me really hungry like if at the end of the day i see i'm at like 2200 but i'm like you know what i'm actually not hungry i'm fine i don't need to force myself to eat another 200 calories like okay cool that's that's a successful day if I get really close to my numbers, obviously successful day, pretty good. If I go over, uh, as long as I'm under my estimated uh, daily energy expenditure, since my goal is to lose weight, 
I'm basically being prescribed a range of, you know, numbers that will work. Like if I'm above my calorie target, but below my estimated energy expenditure, what that effectively means is like, that is still a range where if I eat, eat this amount, I will still lose weight over time, albeit maybe at a slightly slower rate than I would like to. So that's still a successful day. Like, um, and so it, yeah, ultimately, the app is just giving you information that you can use to make choices for yourself. Uh, but we're, we're not going to judge you for any of those choices. Um, let's see. Do you do you want to say the thing about the inherent assumption in the alerts or do you want me to? Uh, why, why don't you do it? Yeah. OK, so um, th- <laughs> this... I stole this from you on Facebook. Yeah, I, I thought you did. But if you. If you had the thought independently as well, I wasn't going to steal your thunder. Yeah. So another thing that's like a little bit fucked up, I think, about how um, about how apps use their alert system to say like, hey, you're doing something bad. Uh, It's it's I don't want to say always because I don't know if that's true, but it's almost always when you go over a particular target. So you know, if your goal is to eat like 2,500 calories per day, eat 2,505. And then it says like, ah, you fucked up. Your goal was to stay under 2,500 today. Fuck you. You did bad. Um, and, and that's almost exclusively how, how it works. There may be an alert in an app somewhere that says like, oh, your goal was to eat 38 grams of fiber today and you only got 30. So try to eat more fiber. But at least when it comes to to calories and like macronutrients, I, I think the way that they almost exclusively work is they don't say you did bad if you went under. They say you did bad if you went over. Yeah, it's not like you start logging your food for the next day and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute, you under ate yesterday. Yeah. Like we have a huge problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so effectively, regardless of what your goal is, the apps are just trying to force you to lose weight and and punishing you for eating more, which uh, like I, I want to make this clear. A lot of the examples that we will give and certainly that I will give when talking about macro factor will be related to weight loss. And that is for the simple reason that I'm drawing on my own experiences and I'm currently trying to lose weight. Uh, but it's it's not a weight loss app. Like if you have a weight loss goal, cool, we can help you get there uh, if you're trying to gain weight like that works the exact same way as losing weight. Uh, macro factor covers that. Or like if you just want to be at maintenance, like maybe you've previously lost weight, but you've struggled with maintaining uh, whatever weight you end up at. And you're, you're just like, yeah, I, I want to use an app to help me stay at maintenance or just purely to gather information about myself. Like I want to know about what my daily energy expenditure is. I know this app will calculate that for me. Bada bing, bada boom. Good. So like you can use it for many purposes, but I, I, again, will often talk about it in the context of weight loss because that's, that's my personal context and experience. Uh, but anyway, other, other apps, regardless of what your goal is, treat it like you have a weight loss goal. Yeah. Um, it's, it's bad to go over your calorie targets. It's not equally bad to stay under. It's just kind of like, could you like the, um, Whatever you set as your calorie or macro targets, it's not it's not a target. It's more like a limit. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's, it's like a speed limit. You get like over the limit under arrest. 
it's not like uh, f- 55 is about what you should aim for on this road. Anywhere in the range from like 40 to 70 will, will get you where you need to go. Uh, that that's that's how macro factor treats targets. Like it's probably not a great way to uh, plan a highway system, but no, you know, for just giving adults information to inform themselves about like, well, you know, based on your goals, if you want to reach them at the weight you say you want to, here's what you should aim for. But you know, if you're under, if you're over, like, that's fine. That's, that's a choice to make. Um, and we don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, we, we give you a, a target plus or minus error and yeah. whether it's plus or minus is, uh, immaterial. Yeah. You know, you're, you're going to miss high some days. You're going to miss low some days. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, one last thing I want to briefly mention here. Uh, people have asked why we don't use energy expenditure data from devices like Fitbit. So wearable devices that calculate uh, some estimate of total daily energy expenditure. Um, so it's not like we're taking the cheap way out or the lazy way out here. Uh, we have done everything you would need to do to integrate that information. So we you can already link up and synchronize with different platforms that make that doable with macro factor but we have chosen not to bring that energy expenditure data in because our algorithm will by definition work uh and one of the issues we have with some of the wearables is that it can introduce a magnitude of estimation error that we're not particularly comfortable with and can be difficult to predict on our end because it's not our technology. Uh, And so we have uh, a beautiful algorithm and we don't want to introduce a bunch of error into it uh, is really what it comes down to. Um, Some devices obviously are better than others, but you know, we covered on the podcast a million years ago. I think we did. Uh, talking about the uh, measurement error, the estimation error associated with some of those wearable devices being uh, a lot higher than most people would be comfortable with. Yeah. Uh, and the, the error magnitude can be far enough to really introduce or can be, be big enough to introduce uh, some big challenges when it comes to uh, total daily energy expenditure estimations and setting calorie targets accordingly. Well, th- there was there <laughs> just to illustrate this, there, there was one person... Uh, who I, I don't think they were even asking about this in the macro factor subreddit. I think this was a question in the stronger by science subreddit. Um, someone was basically asking like, uh, so their, their question was how much does like a stress response and elevated heart rate uh, in, in the context of just being stressed about something, how much I, I think they were watching a sporting event, right? Yeah. The, I Not was, doing I it. That. Yeah. 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 They, they were like, how much does that contribute to, uh, to elevations in energy expenditure. For example, uh, I was at a football game, uh, either like at at their college or like the college that they graduated from, something like that. But it was a close game, wild fourth quarter, came down to the wire. And so they they were watching it on the edge of their seat, heart rate elevated for like four hours. And like their Fitbit told them that they'd burned like 3,000 calories just just watching a sporting event, uh, which is... Uh, obviously incorrect. Yeah. Uh, I, I, sh- 
I don't feel like I even have to justify that statement. Yeah, it, it got their like <laughs> suspense heart rate and was like, oh, looks like you went for a jog. Good for you. Yeah, you, you, you've been running at a moderate pace for the last four hours. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, that, that data uh, at its best is accurate because, you know, sometimes it's going to hit the nail on the head. Uh, but not infrequently, it's going to be off by really, really large margins. Um, and so, like you said, it's it, using that data now before before we have an opportunity to test it and maybe see, like, can we use this data to tweak things around the margin? I'm optimistic that we can, uh, but they're they're not going to be particularly large tweaks. Yeah. Um, also, I think it's worth. Never mind. That was going to be a very technical discussion that I think only like 5% of people would care about. And we've been talking about this too long anyways. Anyway, yeah, yeah we, we don't use that data yet. And it's not because we're being lazy. It just, I, I think that it would have the potential eventually to help us a little bit, but I don't think it it has the potential to help us to a particularly large extent. Yeah. And, and like I said, uh, the integration step is already taken care of. We have the capacity to bring that data in if we uh, determine at a later date, like, yes, there's something we can do with this that is usable and it's going to be really reliable uh, and it's going to function. Uh, it's it's going to improve the function of the app. We can do that if we get to that point, but we're just not there yet in terms of seeing a real tangible benefit from it. Uh, okay, so Greg, uh, basically the rest of the show, I'm going to talk a little bit about an article on the Stronger by Science website. Uh, before we do that, do you want to do your research review on the carbohydrate insulin model? Yeah, th this isn't going to be much of a research review because it's not really even talking about research. Uh, it is talking about a paper that was published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's it's not original research. So uh the narrative review, right? Yeah, sure. So I, I just have like one little point to make about it. So there was a, a paper recently published titled the, the Carbohydrate Insulin Model, colon, A Physiological Perspective on the Obesity Epidemic by uh, David Ludwig and a bunch of other authors. Uh, some, some people on this list that uh, folks listening to the podcast may be uh, aware of are uh, Gary Taubes, Jeff Volick. Uh, Walter Willett, Kara uh, Ebeling. Um, so yeah, this is... The, the only reason I'm mentioning this is that uh, a lot of people asked us about it um, and just like, oh, what, what do you think about this? Like, is there more and more evidence to support the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity? Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons that people were particularly interested about it uh, is this this uh, perspectives paper was published in the American Journal of, of Clinical Nutrition, which is a very prestigious journal. So it, it, it kind of um, implies that this discussion has an elevated degree of legitimacy and like institutional heft behind it um, since they were able to get get the paper in this particular journal. But you look like you're about to say something. No, I was going to make a quip about, um, you know, prestige is cool if that if you're into that kind of thing with journals. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't think it's worth much. But uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, other people do, and that's fine. I can I can respect their opinion. 
Um, but yeah, so I, the, the only thing I really want to say about this paper is that I feel like they are straw manning the energy balance model. And I think the alternative model that they're proposing, I, I think that they're, uh, they're stating or implying that it differs from the energy balance model um, to to a degree that is not justifiable. Basically, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be uh, too fair and circumspect with this criticism. The alternate model they proposed is entirely consistent with the energy balance model. Um and so I feel like they kind of had to straw man the energy balance model a little bit just to present their model as something that was in opposition to it. Uh, so when we were asked about this on Facebook, here was um, the first thing I said, and I'm going to be reading this mostly because the majority of this content uh, is direct quotes from the paper. And I want to make sure I get those quotes right. Sure. So uh, let's see. Here's how they wrap up uh, their intro for the, quote, energy balance model in the paper. So the, what comes next is a direct quote from the paper, uh, how they're describing the energy balance model. And, and I think that what is about to come is a accurate description of the of the energy balance model. Um, and they, they straw man it a little bit uh, later. And actually, I'm not even going to get into that. Like th this, what I'm about to say is really my my key point. OK, so here's the quote from the paper. Importantly, the energy balance model considers all calories metabolically alike for practical purposes. Thus, specific foods or diets may produce variable amounts of weight gain or loss, but virtually only through energy intake related to hunger, satiation, satiety, hedonic effects, or passive overconsumption. Dietary treatment focuses on behavioral strategies to help people reduce energy intake, especially of the energy-dense, tasty, processed foods thought to drive a positive energy balance to maintain adverse or to manage adverse effects, e.g. hunger. Okay, so that's their description of the energy balance model. In uh, quote, by the way. That's their description of the energy balance model. So uh, within how they're describing the energy balance model, particular foods may drive weight gain uh, through effects related to hunger, satiation, satiety, hedonic effects, or passive overconsumption. Uh, so that that's how they're setting up their nemesis, the energy balance model. Okay, so um, let's see. So then I go on to say, uh, so the energy balance, the energy balance model, which they're arguing against, posits that specific foods or diets contribute to obesity via increased energy intake related to hunger, satiation, satiety, hedonic effects, etc. Good to see that what I just riffed about is the same as what I said previously. That's consistency for you, baby. Okay. Uh, then their entire discussion of the carbohydrate insulin model uh, is a discussion of why they think foods with high glycemic loads increase energy intake largely due to increases in hunger and cravings. Uh, then parentheses and cravings implies hedonic effects, in my opinion. Uh, this paragraph is a pretty good distillation of their proposed mechanism of action. Okay, so going back to the paper, direct quote, the rapid absorption of glucose after a consumption of a high glycemic load meal increases insulin secretion, su suppresses glucagon secretion, and elicits a glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide-dominant 
in Cretan response, this highly anabolic state for the first few hours after eating promotes avid uptake of glucose into muscle, liver, ad, ad, muscle, liver, and adipose and stimulates lipogenesis in liver and adipose. Three hours after eating, most of the nutrients from a high glycemic load meal have been absorbed from the digestive tract. However, the persistent anabolic actions from the hormonal response slow the shift from uptake to release of glucose in liver and fatty acids in adipocytes. Consequently, total metabolic fuel concentrations in the blood from glucose, non-esterified fatty acids, and ketones decreases rapidly in the late postprandial phase, possibly to concentrations below that of the fasting state. The brain perceives this signal as indicating that critical tissues, e.g. the liver, are deprived of energy, a state of cellular semi-starvation as it has been termed, and may respond to the metabolic challenge with a counter-regulatory hormone response. Simultaneously, uh, dang it, lost my place. Simultaneously, hunger and cravings for high glycemic load foods, i.e. those that rapidly raise blood glucose, increase, setting the stage for a vicious cycle. Energy expenditure may also decline related to decreased fuel availability, hormonal, e.g. thyroid, effects on metabolic pathways, and thermogenic thermogenic tissue or compensatory adaptations, e.g. in autonomic tone, affecting the postprandial state resting energy expenditure, muscle efficiency, or physical activity level. So just to break that down. So I I wanted to read those quotes in full just to make sure that I wasn't misrepresenting what they were saying. The model that they're proposing is essentially when you eat foods with a high glycemic load, um, you're going to get like rapid uh, disposal of, of glucose into tissues to, due to a high insulin response and uh, GIP response, which is then going to decrease blood glucose levels to in, in a way that your brain perceives as um, like what they term cellular semi-starvation. And then that is then going to cause you to consume more high glycemic load foods to basically compensate, uh, get your blood glucose levels back up. Um, you know, tell, tell your brain that your body is in fact nourished and that basically kicks off a vicious cycle. So I think it's worth noting that what they are proposing is completely compatible, compatible with the energy balance model that they seem to be arguing against. They're essentially arguing that high glycemic load foods kick off this positive feedback loop which ultimately leads to greater energy intake uh, and therefore weight and, and fat accumulation. Like that, that is the model that they're proposing. Um, and, and the, <laughs> like th- their reasoning is completely consistent with how they state the energy balance model works. They're basically saying that you you get the, these blood glucose drops after a high glycemic load mood or after a high glycemic load meal, which leads to greater hunger, lower satiation, lower satiety, uh, and cravings, e.g. hedonic effects, and that leads you to eat more high glycemic load foods. That's exactly how, how they described the energy balance model as working, like these things occur, you eat more, you gain weight. Um, the the little sleight of hand they do is essentially say like, oh, well, the energy balance model 
proposes that kind of the genesis of all of this is you eat more, you gain weight. What we're saying is you gain weight and that induces cravings for high glycemic load foods and then you eat more. It's a chicken and egg thing. They're saying the, the which comes first in chicken and egg. I think that's the whole point. You don't know. Yeah. I'm just going to say it's the chicken. They're saying the chicken is you eat more. We're saying the chicken is you gain weight. Ultimately, you get to the same place, but we're saying that the the inciting incident is slightly different. And I I find that incredible because I think I think everyone else except maybe the authors of this paper are aware that basically everything in biology runs in feedback loops. And so like that's kind of the whole point of the chicken and egg metaphor. You don't know which one came first and it doesn't fucking matter which one came first. Like if they're saying like, oh, you you gained more weight and that's what is causing you to eat more. Well, then that begs the question like, well, how, how did you gain more weight then, buddy? Like how yeah. did how did that occur? Like at some point in the process, like they're they're not arguing against um, positive energy balance being the the cause of weight gain ultimately, and so like you know if they're saying the inciting incident is gaining weight, that implies that someone previously had eaten more. So like I don't know, man. I I read the paper and by the end of it, like I, I think that there are things about their interpretation of some mechanisms that I would quibble with. But ultimately I, I was just wondering like, why did you write this? Because yeah. if, if they didn't write it, if they didn't write it as a framing of carbohydrate insulin model versus energy balance model, I think it could have actually been a pretty valuable paper. If, if they were saying like, you know, people have positive energy balance over time. That's one of the things contributing to the obesity epidemic. Here is a potential mechanism that could be contributing to positive energy balance in some populations over time. Um, like that would have been a perfectly fair framing of, of the evidence that they presented. Uh, and I, th I think it would have uh, been a, a challenging and thought provoking and valuable paper, but they're, their choice to frame it as like, hey, here's this thing that's different than the energy balance model. And, and now these two things are, are in conflict. I think in the conclusion, they refer to it as a paradigm clash. Uh, like by the time I got there and saw the phrase paradigm clash, I was ready to pull my hair out because I, I was just thinking like everything you've described to this point, the, the uh, like causal chain of events that you're proposing that contributes to all of these things literally all of it is consistent with the energy balance model. So it's, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's a bad paper. It's just a deeply frustrated paper or frustrating paper because it seems like either they don't fully understand what they're arguing against, which I feel like they have to, like there are some well, smart guys on that paper. And they've been having this argument for like 15 years. Right. So I, it, it feels like either they don't understand what they're arguing against or they're willfully misrepresenting it for the purpose of uh, getting press and, and uh, getting their paper out there and getting citations, which I'm not going to claim that that's what they're doing. Cause I don't know what's in their hearts, but 
boy, that's what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's it's not that, it's not that bad of a paper. Ultimately it's just deeply frustrating. Yeah. Well, I got to admit, I didn't read it. Uh, so I'm not participating in the frustration just because you you really didn't miss anything. (laughs) I mean, if you were, (laughs) if you were kind of staying up to date with this whole clash going Mm -hmm. back, you know, to the, I mean, like I said, it's probably been 10 or 15 years going where, where this has been kind of accelerating and going back and forth at a certain point, you would just be like, man, these goalposts keep moving. Um, things keep getting reframed and redefined. And no, so I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off, but no. So that, that is actually one of the key points I meant to make, uh, that I, I forgot to, cause I got a little worked up. Um, yeah, so I, I think that one of the noteworthy things about this paper, and and one of the reasons that I, that I didn't completely hate it, um, is the fact that, like you're saying, the shifting goalposts, not all of these authors, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, there were 17 authors on, on this paper, but several of the authors on this paper, in the not too distant past, have argued for stronger versions of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity that were not consistent with the evidence or uh, of the energy balance model. So the fact that the goalposts have shifted so far that their current iteration of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity is 100% fully consistent with the energy balance model to the point that now they're just kind of like, I don't know, quibbling about which came first, the chicken or the egg. I think that uh, it is really great vindication for people several years ago saying like, oh yeah, your arguments are fucking weak for like the more, like the harder versions of the carbohydrate insulin model because they've, they have come, they've shifted the goalposts all the way to the point that their current goalposts are basically the same goalposts as the energy balance model. You, you kick a ball through one, you kick a ball through both. Um, and so if, if anything, I don't know, this paper might be the white flag. Like they, they might yeah. be saying like, yeah, we, we lost to this one. We want to make, we want to be able to hold on to our pride and still say that these two models are different and that we're still right. But we have to recognize that the evidence that, it doesn't ultimately come down to energy balance. Like we, we have to take the L on that one. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I remember following this back in the day and you would see all of these discussions saying like, okay, so with, with the more, um, uh, with the really aggressive versions of, of the whole, uh, carbohydrate insulin model, you'd say, okay, so, if that is true, then we should observe the following. And then there's a randomized controlled trial and we do not observe Mm -hmm. kind of the intuitive outcome we would expect if that model was fully supported. Uh, And you do that again and again and again, and then you do a couple meta analyses and you keep finding like, dude, the interventions that you're implying with this model do not seem to be outperforming other interventions. And it looks like the energy balance model is doing a pretty good job holding up. Um, now there are of course major challenges with turning the conceptual, uh, aspect of the energy balance model into really effective and actionable interventions to change body weight. That's where things get extremely challenging. You start talking about 
how do we put together really good interventions to uh, to support really big behavior change? So I'm, I'm not saying, you know, oh, weight loss is really as simple as this and there's nothing else to it. It's conceptually, it fits very well within the energy balance model paradigm. I think the biggest hurdle, the biggest challenge moving forward is taking that energy balance model, you know, the, 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 the conceptual knowledge that comes from it and saying, okay, now how do we make this more actionable so that we can help people? Well, yeah, so that, that's exactly what I was saying about how the paper could have been framed in that way. And it could have been pretty valuable. Like yeah. if, if they wanted to argue like, okay, ultimately it comes down to energy balance. And we believe for these reasons that if you eat a, a generally balanced diet, but uh, strongly curtail high glycemic load meals, that behavioral change, which, you know, may, may be more tolerable to a lot of people than asking them to exercise way more, like a asking them to make, cut out an entire uh, category of food, like an entire macronutrient. Like we're not saying you have to go no carb or even low carb. We're just saying like, yeah, the really high glycemic load stuff cut down on that. Like, okay, that, that might be a, a, a tolerable behavior change that people can stick to. And so, you know, we're proposing that this is something within the energy balance model that could make a dent in this thing. Like th at that point, you could then quibble about like maybe some of the research they cite, maybe some of the interpretations of it. And ultimately, I'm not really even that interested in that conversation, but that would be a useful jumping off point to have a conversation. Um, so yeah, I, I think, like I said before, I think if they would have framed their paper that way, it would have been, it would have been a good, interesting paper, um, that, that could have, uh, inspired collaborative discussion related to how you can, you know, interpret some of their arguments and, and maybe use that to, um, help people uh, get where they want to go instead of just saying like, this is a grand battle of ideas. It's a paradigm clash, like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's very silly. It's very yeah, silly. I agree. All right. So, uh, moving on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're kind of behind the timeline. We were, we were aiming for right? a little bit behind the timeline, yeah, but that's, that's okay. So let's, let's dive right in. Okay. So, um, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, we released an article yesterday, maybe? The, the days are really blended together. We, we did drop it yesterday. We dropped it three days ago as of the time you'll be listening to this. Yeah. So uh, the article, the short title is the Definitive Diet Setup Guide. And so the whole purpose here was to help somebody, you know, just coming into it. Uh, starting from scratch and saying, let's put together a diet uh, for a particular goal, whether it would be weight gain, weight loss, weight maintenance, whatever the case may be. I don't want to be too repetitive here because we have talked about some aspects of what this article provides. Uh, but what I would hope, you know, I, I do expect that a lot of people will look at this and say, a lot of this information I knew previously. But what I think people will get out of this is a couple of things. So first of all, if you know somebody who's going to start a diet who hasn't been into nutrition as long as you have, I'd like to think this is a good resource you can send them that kind of boils it down to pretty simple things and says, hey, here's how you might start from scratch and, and put a diet together. I also think uh, it offers some uh, 
slightly refined recommendations when it comes to uh, various aspects of dying, uh, dieting, particularly uh, macronutrient targets. So I want to get into how the macronutrient guidelines differ uh, from some of the more common ones that, that we see elsewhere. So I want to talk about our activity factors because that was the one thing that I contributed and I we, feel good about it. We're going to. So if you look at the article, uh, it, it's kind of in three parts. So it talks a little bit about background information. Then it talks more about putting that into practice, putting some numbers on it. And then it also talks about how to adjust the diet as you go, because you're not going to set one diet and ride that out for the rest of your life. You're going to have to make... Um, you know, continuous adjustments as you go. Cause as we know, whether we're talking about overfeeding or underfeeding, the body does tend to adjust. Okay. So it starts out, uh, talking about some of those metabolic rate equations we mentioned previously. Uh, I think the revised Harris Benedict equation is great. If you're a non lifter, uh, if you're a lifter, I think the Cunningham equation, uh, from 1980 is really excellent. So that can give you an idea of your total daily energy expenditure or, or your uh, resting metabolic rate, I should say, um, if you had absolutely no idea going into it. So if you hadn't been tracking and you had no idea what your, your maintenance calories look like, you could use that to get your resting energy expenditure. And then we convert that to a total daily energy expenditure estimate using the macro factor correction factors that Greg is so proud of. And the one uh, very intuitive, obvious, but completely innovative thing we did here is we finally separated out general activity from structured exercise activity uh, because the way it was done previously there, if you were someone who trained a lot, but were otherwise sedentary, there was no help for you there. Um, if you were somebody who was generally quite active, but didn't do any exercise at all, it was still kind of hard to tell where you would fall on that. So what we do is we set up, uh, your general activity correction factor. If you're not very active in terms of general non-exercise activity, uh, it's a 1.2. If you're moderately active 1.4, if you're highly active, that'd be 1.6. And then the adjustment for exercise activity is additive. Uh, and so there's a whole grid in the article that kind of talks through what value you would choose based on your general activity level, your exercise activity level, based on number of training sessions per week, add those up, multiply by the resting energy expenditure estimate. Now you've got a pretty good estimate for total daily energy expenditure. Then what we do is we offer up some targets for if you have a weight loss goal, a maintenance goal, or a weight gain goal what kind of targets you'd be looking for in terms of monitoring changes in body weight over time. So obviously with maintenance, you would expect that body weight is going to stay pretty stable. Uh, we, we, we give some guidelines, you know, so if, if you're going to be cutting aggressively, you might be losing more than 1% of body weight per week. Moderate cut is going to be lower than that, you know, 0.25 to 1% of body weight per week. We do the same thing when it comes to bulking. Uh, so a moderate bulk, talking about gaining 0.1 to 0.25% uh, of body weight per week. Aggressive bulk, over 0.25% of body weight per week. And those are a little bit on the conservative side. So one of the things Macro Factor does is it tweaks your recommendation in terms of the ranges for rate of weight gain based on your experience level as a lifter. So if you're a total beginner and you're about to really ride that wave of some really sick beginner gains, 
we would say, you know what? Yeah, it's okay if we bump that a little comfortably above 0.25% of body weight per week because you're going to be putting on some mass over the next few months. You know, so those the, these uh, ranges are not perfect for everybody, but what we want to do is make sure that people are bulking. We've all been there. Uh, I know both of us have, Greg, where you do your first bulk you way overestimate how rapidly you can gain muscle and the magnitude of muscle you can gain. And then you look back at it and you say, dude, why did I do this? Like I should have gone slower. I would have been happier with the result. So we do kind of err on the conservative side there, but you, you get freedom within the app to adjust that upward if you'd like. So that's how we kind of go through the article in terms of figuring out, okay, what's my total daily energy expenditure in order to, uh, achieve a, partic a particular um, physique goal. You know, how rapidly should I be gaining or losing body weight? Uh, and then, of course, you're going to be adjusting your calorie target as you go based on how your body weight is responding. One of the things I'm really proud of with this article uh, is that we didn't give macronutrient target recommendations uh, in the way that it's typically done. Okay. So, a lot of times with protein targets, it's going to be a very simple, uh, you know, grams per kilogram of total body mass. And the same thing goes when it comes to setting a lower limit for fat intake. Uh, a lot of times people say 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7 grams per kilogram of total body mass. Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, the, the reason why uh, most protein recommendations are just grams per kilogram or grams per pound of just total body mass uh, is that that's how it's quantified generally in the research. So, yeah. you know, if, if you're a evidence-based guy or gal uh, and you're saying like, well, okay, like what are, what are some research-backed numbers? You, you are probably going to come across numbers in grams per pound or grams per kilogram. So that's uh, a, a very both understandable and justifiable uh, way to give recommendations. And I mean, I've, I've certainly done so uh, frequently in the past and, and probably uh, from time to time, we'll continue to do so in the future. Yeah. There are contexts where it makes sense. Yeah. No question. I've done it before. Um, but the challenge with creating a diet app is, uh, you know, like you said, in research, they'll say, oh, grams per kilogram. We'll look at previous research, use that number, put it in here. We're good to go. Yeah. They don't have to deal with the dilemma of people of wildly different body sizes using an application to give a recommendation. Correct. Right. Yeah, I, I was teeing you up for that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, classic alley-oop. Yeah. If you consider a hypothetical scenario, right? So uh, let's say a person 350 pounds. Uh, I'm not going to do kilograms because I believe in freedom units and that's my right. Uh, and I'm not good at the calculation like you are. Uh, but a 350 pound person who has a weight loss goal. It's like 160 keys. Yeah. So I struggle when we take those flat recommendations based on body weight. A lot of people say, oh, weight loss, you know, give them like 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein. I struggle to buy the concept that that individual necessarily needs 350 grams of protein to support their goal. Same thing goes, even if you set fat at the absolute lower level that a lot of people recommend, we're still talking about like their absolute bare minimum at the start of this diet is going to be 716 calories coming straight from fat alone. So just from the fat and the protein, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about a really substantial calorie intake that's going to leave them in a spot where they probably don't need necessarily 
all of that fat intake and all of that protein intake. And now their hands are tied when it comes to getting some allocation of calories from carbohydrate. You know, they're, they're kind of forced into a particular approach that people who like the carb insulin model, I'm sure would be very happy about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, like functionally, if you say like, okay, we need, uh, some level of fat intake just to make sure you're, you're healthy and safe and can produce hormones. Uh, and we're going to prioritize protein intake past that. Make sure you can, uh, you know, get big, stay big, not lose a ton of muscle. Functionally, you just wind up in a situation where it's like, oh, you, you want to lose weight at a modest clip? Cool, you're doing keto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it really puts you in a position where you don't have a lot of flexibility um, if you have a high body mass at the start and you want to lose weight relatively quickly. Uh, and if anyone is in a position to safely have a relatively high rate of weight loss, it would be someone who has a relatively high body mass at, at baseline. Of course, you don't want to get too carried away with it, but but that is an instance where we can, you know, kind of move things along more quickly and get that momentum rolling. So um, one of the things that that you run into is, is a, a bit of, especially with the fat recommendation, this kind of paradoxical situation where if you compare uh, someone with high body mass with some uh, some excess adiposity they're trying to lose. Uh, if you compare someone in that scenario to like, uh, you know, a physique competitor, uh, let's say in the bikini or figure division who weighs 100 or 105 pounds, you run into this kind of paradoxical scenario where the the individual who really critically needs to make sure they're being mindful of of, you know, sufficient dietary fat on a daily basis is getting a very low recommendation and the person who isn't in such a critical state where they need uh you know that full 0.5 grams per kilogram of body mass they're getting a much uh a much more generous recommendation in terms of daily uh dietary fat intake it puts you in this paradoxical situation where the priority is almost kind of inverted so what we did to get around that uh was we actually base our uh lower limit for fat not the recommendation this is important. This is like your absolute lower limit on a daily basis that your, your fat intake should never get below. But we base that on height. So we basically said, uh, if you're over 150 centimeters tall, uh, I'm violating my rule of freedom units now going into centimeters, but you take your height in centimeters minus 150, you divide that by two and you add 30. And that many grams of fat is kind of the lower limit that you really ought never go below. Now, if you're under 150 centimeters tall, then just a flat value of 30 grams per day would work as an absolute lower limit that you're never going below. So when we scale it by height, we don't run into that situation where we have this kind of paradoxical thing where the people who really need to be mindful of their, their uh, dietary fat intake on a daily basis are getting these excessively restrictive numbers and the people who have a little bit more wiggle room are getting these really generous recommendations. So that's how we tackled fat, which, uh, I think is a, a kind of a creative way to do it, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. it, it differs from the typical recommendation. That's just grams per kilogram of total body mass. And I think it's getting dietary fat where it needs to go most effectively. Yeah. When it comes to protein, uh, this is an area where we put a lot of thought into it. And with protein, I think in the evidence-based fitness world, we've gotten into that kind of knee-jerk response. Protein, 1.6 to 2.2. 2. 
Morton and colleagues. It's a meta analysis. We like we that. Trust. Yeah. Yeah. We, we like that. Here it is. Everybody use it. And it's gotten to the point that when you work with a client, no matter what their body composition is like, if you give a protein target under 2.2 grams per kilogram, there's, they like balk at it. There's this reaction of like, well, why am I not getting the lifter recommendation? You know, but under 1.6, you mean? Well, under 2.2, man. Because honestly, if the, you it, people see the top end of the 95% confidence interval and they say, like, ah, that's well, where I should be. Well, and that's not the confidence interval either. That was just kind of in the paper. They said, ah, 1.6 to 2.2, that's pretty good. We will get into the confidence interval. I, I think it does happen oh, to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, it, it does happen ahead. to be the top of the confidence interval, but the, the recommendation they're providing is not the confidence interval for, yeah. for their breakpoint. So, uh, but usually with it, lifters, it's, it's, the t it's the top half of the confidence interval. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Their their, rec their recommendation is the mean value up to the top of the ninety five percent confidence interval. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So with lifters, though, if you tell if you tell them protein one point six to two point two, that's immediately filtered. That's 2.2. You yeah. know what I mean? No one's going, ah, let me see if I can go a little bit lower. There's just this natural inclination to aim for the higher end of the range. So we're talking a little bit about a confidence interval. It's from this uh, meta-analysis by Morton and colleagues. It's a great paper. I love the paper. I it cite is, it all yeah. the time. It's a very nice paper with some really good researchers on it. So I don't want it to sound like we're being overly critical of the paper, but one thing that is unavoidable is that the interpretation of that 1.6 to 2.2, there are some assumptions built into it uh, that I don't think a lot of people wrestle with on a regular basis when they kind of give out that recommendation. Yeah, we're, we're not being critical of the paper. We're being critical of the uh, universalizing and unnuanced uh, interpretation of the paper. That's that's pretty common. Yeah, yeah. So it was more critical of the application of the finding than the the work that went into the finding, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what they did in, in this particular aspect of the paper, this part of the paper, is they plotted all these different data points of like, what was your total protein intake in the intervention? And what was your change in fat-free mass? And what they were trying to figure out is if you're someone who's lifting during an intervention here, at what protein intake on a daily basis do we, do we, essentially maximize your gains in fat-free mass like at, at what level the assumption is that eventually we're going to have diminishing returns where you're eating enough protein to fully support your gains in fat-free mass what they're trying to do is identify that break point where the returns really do start to diminish and beyond that break point there's really not a lot of inherent value associated with increasing your protein ever higher so that's the general approach of what they were doing in this particular part of the meta-analysis that's been applied really broadly. A couple things to keep in mind. First of all, because of the studies that actually go in to the meta-analysis, this is kind of applicable to someone who has a generally average body fat percentage. Um, and it's within the context of people who are lifting, who are not in a calorie, like a big calorie deficit. Uh, so Already there are assumptions about who's using this number uh, and in what context they're using that number. Because just like any other systematic review or meta-analysis, there is a specific uh there are specific criteria for study inclusion. And beyond inclusion exclusion criteria, 
there are certain studies that have been done and certain studies that have not yet been done. Yeah. So ultimately you can only analyze the research that does exist and not uh, make assumptions about the research that could someday exist. Yeah. And so with that number 1.6 to 2.2, that's grams per kilogram of total body mass. It's probably going to work pretty well if you're a lifter and you have relatively moderate body fat level, relatively average uh, compared to the typical resistance training study, uh, and you're not in a huge calorie deficit, like it, and you're trying to maximize fat-free mass. That that number is probably going to work pretty well. So the one thing is the assumptions about who is using this this uh, recommendation and in what context. The other thing to keep in mind is, like I said, they're trying to identify this breakpoint. And the break point occurred at 1.6 grams per kilogram of body mass per day of protein intake. But the 95% confidence interval of that break point spans from 1.03 to 2.2, which nearly spans the entirety of the data on the x-axis. I mean, the, the lowest intakes are down around point, a little over 0.8. Uh, the highest intakes are about 2.8. 2.5, maybe 2.3, yeah. something like that. So what that means is it's not a criticism of the data, but it is a reflection that this, uh, this break point, this inflection point at 1.6 that is often treated as being universally true and quite precise in terms of the way people discuss it, it's a relatively imprecise estimate and only applies to the context that that relates to the data actually going into the model. So that is a, a really long explanation of saying why we didn't just want to have the app say, oh, yeah, 1.6 to 2.2. And we probably are going to get some people who are familiar with, you know, the evidence-based fitness uh, kind of rules and regulations. They're going to get their protein recommendation from macro factor and say, whoa, 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 this doesn't fall between 1.6 and 2.2. Like what's going on here? I haven't seen that yet, but it's probably going to happen, right? So what we tried to do here, um, I tried to really build in uh, the recommendations. Uh, I, I tried to build in evidence from, th I'd say probably three or four primary sources. So I tried to do some back calculation based on the Morton data and say, okay, if we make some assumptions about the body composition of participants, how can we scale this range to kilograms of fat-free mass instead of total body weight? Because again, we need this to be universally applicable to people with a wide range of body fat levels and a, a wide range of total body mass. I also used uh, leaned on some evidence uh, from a study by a researcher named Bandigan and colleagues. And I also used uh, some of the data from the systematic review that Helms did. I kind of triangulated all three of those, ran some calculations, and got down to some protein recommendations that we were both really happy with when we started putting in some test numbers and seeing how it reacted. It tended to correspond really well with real-world experience and match those three data sources simultaneously uh, pretty well. And so in macro factor, your protein intake that's recommended is going to be influenced by a few different things you put in. It's going to be your fat-free mass. It's going to be your energy status, whether you're in a surplus deficit or maintenance. 
the type of exercise activity you're doing, whether it's, you know, no exercise, cardio only, or something involving resistance training. And then also personal preference. We ask you like, Hey, are you going to be annoyed if we give you <laughs> a protein intake that's a little lower than you want? You know, you can opt into saying, actually, like, give me the highest protein that, that you think is advisable. You know, we, we let you choose uh, your preference in terms of whether you're someone who prefers low protein kind of in the middle or, you know, really high protein. So all of those things go into the recommendation and you could get a recommendation. If you're someone who's sedentary, not training, uh, your weight stable, so you're not in a deficit, moderate to high body fat percentage, uh, and you have a preference for lower protein intake, I don't think it's all that crazy to rec recommend a protein intake, uh, you know, down around 1.25 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Again, this is someone who's not lifting, who has a preference for lower protein. I, I don't think that's too crazy a recommendation. On the higher end, for someone who is, uh, you know, highly active, someone's really lean, they have a preference for high protein intake, they're in a big calorie deficit. I mean, we're basically describing a bodybuilder who's trying to get pretty shredded, right? For them, up to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass can, can definitely make sense. You know, so there's a broad range there. For the typical lifter, I think somewhere in the range of 2 to 2.7, 2, 2 to 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, not total mass, is generally going to put you in a pretty good range. Uh, but like I said, in macro factor, you're going to see some variability based on all those different data input, uh, inputs related to the type of training you're doing, your energy status, your fat-free mass, and your personal preference. So yeah. uh, we put, as you can probably tell, a pretty sickening amount of thought into uh, how to make sure these are scalable to a really broad range of users um, so that it will basically across the entire uh, spectrum of different types of activities and different uh, body fat levels. We wanted to make sure that these recommendations are going to be absolutely solid across that entire spectrum. Yeah, j just, to just to reiterate that, th this part of the app, like, so we... Um like everyone had their had their fingers in every like little pie as far as the app went uh like we, we all had input on everything but but this this part was definitely uh the one where where Trex carried most of the load and I, i'd say you put what like about about like 2 weeks of consistent work into making sure that um cuz so the, the thing here is like uh, if you've been kind of swimming in the evidence-based waters for, I don't know, six months, <laughs> um, kind of like the average numbers are probably just burned into your head. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, if if the typical person with a normal body comp, uh, normal weight loss or weight gain goals came to you, they said, give me macros. And I'm not going to tell you anything about myself and my preferences. Just give me macros I should aim for that are probably pretty decent. Like I, I think anyone could do that and it would take virtually no effort. The, the thing that, um, the thing that did take a lot of work was considering every potential edge case. Yeah. So, um, you know, what if you are super shredded and like maybe still trying to lose weight faster than we would recommend? Like, can we still give recommendations that even if that might be a somewhat unadvisable goal will be the best thing for that goal you've chosen or like, 
you know, if, if you are, if you do have a body composition that is uh, considerably outside the realm of uh, the research that people would often consider for making these types of recommendations, like can, can we adequately accommodate that? So there was, there was a ton of stress testing for basically every potential edge case that we could think of. And every time we came up with a new set of recommendations, it was a process of being like, well, okay, here's, here's like 12 archetypes of people who are all very different and have very different goals and very different preferences. And so like, let's just, let's just run the numbers for everyone and see if we feel good about all of these recommendations. And so, you know, it's not like just a, uh, matrix where okay you have person are they gaining weight losing weight uh and are they lifting like you know you're not dealing with two considerations we're talking about like i don't know probably considerations across eight different axes and like trying to figure trying to figure out uh sets of targets and recommendations that would apply to everyone that we could think of um and that that was i mean that was a big lift and I kept using uh, we pronouns, but it, I mean, t- to be fair, that was mostly Eric. Uh, and he's not going to brag on himself, but he he put in a ton of work into making sure that the recommendations Macro Factor gave would be appropriate for virtually everyone. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, very, very impressed with with what he came up with. Like, uh, I, I, I think like probably 80% of our users won't ever experience that because they're, yeah, they're, they're in situations where just the normal recommendations work just fine. Um, but yeah, like the, the 10, 20% of people who like maybe aren't served particularly well by those typical sets of recommendations. Uh, we, we've, I said we again, Eric put uh, a ton of thought and effort into um, making sure that the recommendations we gave would, would apply really well uh, even to, to edge cases. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, so far, like you said, it's the type of effort that if you do it well, it will never be appreciated. (laughs) You know, like it's, it only surfaces if someone gets just bonkers macro targets and they're like, what the hell happened here? Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of trying to plan for all those different scenarios and make sure. And so far, we haven't had any issues where someone's like, hey, my macros are totally crazy. Um, we did have one instance where someone got their macros and then changed them because they didn't like them and then changed them back because they're like, actually, yeah, that was better. <laughs> uh, and there were some extenuating circumstances there, but I still take credit for it. And I told them, that the app knows their preferences better than they do before they even used it, which uh, <laughs> is not true, but I'll take it. Uh, so those are the, the two things that I think have potential for big impact from that article. Um, because I think, uh, you know, when people would ask me previously, before I had to really uh, get my hands dirty with these calculations that are more generalizable to different uh, body shapes and body sizes, People would would ask for recommendations. Oh, 1.6, 2.2, it'll be fine. And then they say, well, what if I weigh, you know, 410 pounds? And I say, well, then don't use those recommendations. They don't work anymore. And that's not where you want to be with broad recommendations. You know, you, you want yeah. them to be scalable 
and applicable to uh to more more scenarios than just like oh you're a 180 pound male who lifts and is 15 percent body fat boy do i have a recommendation for you mm-hmm. you know so yeah uh I, I think the the fat recommendation and the protein recommendation uh have some potential for maybe widespread adoption um in terms of giving people some some guidance with their their diet if you're interested in the article it goes into far more than just hey here's you know a really long article about ideal protein intakes it it goes into uh my, know that would be a cool article it would be a cool article um but it it's a little more broad than that we talk about micronutrients fiber hydration uh, a lot of FAQs uh, about some common dietary uh, approaches. And uh, so I think, like I said, if, if you're looking for, you know, kind of a one-stop shop to get a diet set up or somewhere where you can direct somebody who uh, doesn't have a lot of previous nutritional knowledge, I, I think this is a hopefully going to be a useful resource. Now, I think it's probably time to play us out here. And, um, this is a really important segment to play us out this week. Usually you come out, you, you come up with the topic and it's usually some stupid kitchen stuff. Nobody cares about (laughs) with, uh, oh, by the way, I saw a recipe for keto lasagna. Oh no. And I think you owe me an apology because this keto lasagna was just, it was just a stuffed pepper. That's all it was. <laughs> it had nothing to do. <laughs> you you thought mine was bad. This was literally just like, ha- have you tried doing a stuffed pepper with, uh, you know, beef and cheese and just normal stuffed pepper stuff? It's basically lasagna. <laughs> so, That's so good. So anyway, this is totally different. This is something that has come up on the podcast before. Uh, Fat Bear Week is coming up. I believe it starts on the 29th of September, if memory serves. But uh, basically what you want to do on the 29th then is go in, make sure you lock in to a macro factor subscription because that's the second to last day, I think, of our of our launch sale. So go in, take care of that macro factor subscription. Uh, I wouldn't miss that. But you also don't want to miss Fat Bear Week because what you can do is uh, choose your favorite bear and see if they end up winning the competition. It's basically an annual thing where bears need to get ready to hibernate. It's what they like to do, and they get very chunky. And so as as fans of these majestic beasts, you can see who got the chunkiest and vote on a winner, I believe. So I'm personally pulling for 32 Chunk. That is his name, number included. 32 Chunk is a large adult male, with narrowly set eyes and a prominent brow ridge. Uh, Even at his leanest, Chunk carries pretty substantial fat reserves, especially on his hind quarters. That boy thick. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) In the early summer, he tends to shed a lot of the fur around his shoulders and neck, uh, and this exposes numerous scars and wounds. So uh, 32 Chunk is uh, quite thick, but also, I mean, he's been in his share of battles. He's a tough guy. And, uh, you know, he was first identified in 2007 as an independent, chunky-looking, two-and-a-half-year-old bear. Since then, he's gone on to become one of the largest adults at Brooks River. Uh, And due to his size and strength, 
He is at the top tier of the bear hierarchy over there in that particular bear community. Gives him great access to mating opportunities and fishing spots. Uh, and he's not afraid to displace others from the resources he wants. So he's not taking any BS from other bears, but his behavior is described as enigmatic. So he's been shown he's been showing a tendency to wait patiently uh, to just kind of scavenge some leftover salmon, and he'll even play with other bears. And as we all know, that's pretty uncommon for a dominant bear who's at the top of the hierarchy. So when you look at 32 chunk, you see a well-rounded bear with a strong battle history, but he's also down to earth and he's a pillar in his community. You know, he's top of the hierarchy, but he'll still mingle with people lower on the hierarchy. So that's why I like 32 chunk. And also because, uh, my girlfriend's cat, I call it chunk that mm -hmm. that's the cat's nickname. So I think it's really fitting. I think 32 chunk is in real life. What like most gym bros think they are. <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah, if, if I become the largest person here that will uh, grant me access to greater mating opportunities, uh, I have a lot of scars from, from my battles, uh, with the iron, of course. Uh, but yeah, ultimately like I do have like a attractive enigmatic personality and like, I'm, I'm not like the other guys. So. Yeah. I'm not your typical meathead bear. Like yeah. I'm, I'm pretty chill. <laughs> yeah. And sure. Maybe I'm still carrying a little extra fat on my hindquarters, but like by next, by next beach season, like it's going to be dialed in. Yep. Um, yeah, cool. I, I, I feel like I, I know this guy, uh, that, 32 chunk is no longer a bear but about 14 people who i know in real life <laughs> now you're you're pulling for someone else though uh, a, a very different bear yeah so i'm pulling for 128 grazer uh my so one thing to note about eric's bear which he chose and uh you're not going to know this unless you go to the bear week website is uh when you go to the meet the bears page 32 chunk was coincidentally the first bear you encounter on the page. So I'm, I'm thinking this might just be kind of like a, I love lamp scenario. No, Eric just fell in love with the first bear that he saw. Um, you know, the jury's still out, but that's certainly a plausible hypothesis. And I, uh, took the time and effort when outlining, uh, this podcast episode to scroll all the way down to the second bear on the list. And that was, <laughs> and that was 128 grazer, uh, Grazer is a large adult female with blonde fur, a long straight muzzle, and conspicuously large blonde ears. Uh, you know, those are those are all clearly things that one would look for in a bear. Uh, you know, they, they say that bears with long straight muzzles tend to tend to be the best bears. Uh, this has now become a bear phrenology podcast. Um during the late summer and fall, her fur is grizzled brown, and she is often one of the fattest bears to utilize Brooks River. So, again, we, we both picked a uh, good track record. Yeah, strong contenders. You know, the, the sport here is becoming chunky. So, you yeah, want to pa have a past, uh, past indicators don't guarantee future success. Any financial advisor will tell you that. But, uh, you know, may maybe we're bandwagon fans for Chunk and Grazer, but, uh, you know, we, we think that they. Uh, have have good chances to win i mean come december give me tom brady you yeah. know what i mean yeah like, for sure it, it is what it is uh grazer was introduced to brooks river as a young cub in 2005 since since then she's become one bear cams most one of the bear cams most recognizable bears so she's a bit of a social media sensation uh 
an influencer, if you will. Uh, but you know, it's it, it goes beyond the looks for her. She's also very skilled. Uh, she can fish successfully in many locations, but in the early summer, she prefers the lip of Brooks Falls, where she's an especially skilled angler. So, you know, not only uh, not only do the people love her for for her video content she puts out, uh, but she's also a, a great fisherwoman, and that's to be commended. Um, Grazer is more cryptic than most and often chooses to fish in areas of the river away from bear cam. So again, not only does she create absolute magic when she gets on the bear cam, but she, she's not craving the limelight, you know, she's, uh, she doesn't do it cause she feels like she needs it. She's, she's ultimately a, a private person. And I, I relate to that. Uh, Grazer is one of the most defensive mother bears at Brooks river. Um, she often preemptively confronts and attacks much larger bears, including some of the most including some of the river's most dominant adult males in order to ensure her cubs are safe. So I think I know where Chunk got those scars. He yeah. you know, walks up to the bear cam and says, you want to know how I got these scars? And then Grazer comes up and says, yeah, I fucked you up, boy. Uh, her defensiveness is risky yet provides her with access to areas of Brook Falls that many other mother bears won't approach. So she uh, she gets exclusive access to places, and, and you get that when you're a star. Uh, during 2020, she's raising two spring cubs who benefit from their mother's boldness in the face of danger and competition. And that really brings it home for me. All of these excellent things I've said about Grazer, uh, she is able to accomplish uh, while being a strong single mom. So... Uh, Anyway, uh, good luck with that chunk pick. Uh, I, I respectfully um, disagree, and I'm pulling for 128 Grazer. I'm a little bit nervous that we potentially picked bears from last year's competition. <laughs> because it, say, it says during 2020, she's raising two spring cubs. I feel like... Yeah, that's that's very possible. I, I didn't catch that. <laughs> Well, the I'm national, not, I, I assume they're still alive. <laughs> yeah. The national park service, uh, really should have updated the website if that's the case. So yeah. shame on them, but, oh, well. uh, bear week it's happening. Be sure to join in on the fun <laughs> and we're, we're pulling for 32 chunk. Uh, all right. As always, thanks so much for joining us on the stronger by science podcast. And we will be back soon with another one. Thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.